Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. I'm going to pray. Please join me. Father, I thank you for what you've been doing, and I thank you that right now, by your Spirit, you are here with us. Would you continue? We say, we we want more of you. We want that sort of outrageous faith that looks at Elijah and says, I want double your portion. Or the sort of outrageous faith that wrestles all night long with you and says, I won't let go until you bless me. You actually welcome those sorts of prayers. You answer those sorts of prayers. And so that's what we're asking. Whatever whatever of your spirit we have experienced in our story to this point, whatever we've experienced even this morning, we're just asking how that you continue to move. We want more of you. It's stunning that for all of eternity, we will explore the glories of your perfections and we will never find their boundaries. Thousands and thousands of years from now, we will look at you and be surprised all over again because you are eternal in your glory. And so what we're saying is whatever we've tasted, we want more. And my request for my brothers and sisters in this moment, in this space, is that mm, that they would be finishers, not just starters. That they would be faithful until the end, and that God, you, by your spirit, as you pour out more of yourself on us, you would equip us to be men and women that survive the anointing. That it wouldn't crush or derail us, but that it in fact would be wind in our sails, that it would accompany the proclamation of the word, that we would be people that are carried along into a genuine gospel renewal, that we would experience revival in our time, in our place. So, would you use these words? Holy Spirit, would you breathe life? on these moments, would you use me, a weak servant, for your purposes to serve and bless these men and women, that they would be finishers. Would you make it true in Jesus' name? Amen. I've, I've borrowed an, a phrase in my prayer, and if I were going to give a title to this message, it would be the title of the message, Surviving the Anointing. It's, it's, not a, it's not a phrase that's original to me. A man named David Ravenhill coined that phrase. His father was a man named Leonard Ravenhill. You may be familiar with him. He's written quite a bit about revival. He was a revival preacher. He experienced the movement of God all around the world as he traveled, a man of prayer and power. 
and his son grew up in a home with him watching his father and was so stunned by his life and his ministry that he spent his ministry trying to understand the nature of anointing. He said, I, I saw it up close and personal, but I'm trying to make sense of it. And so he did a lot of work about that. And, and he, he ended up calling this work surviving the anointing because what he came to realize is that for people in the scriptures that were specifically noted as being anointed by God, it was very rare for them to finish. When noted particularly that they had the anointing of God on their life, very frequently they had phenomenally devastating finishes. That we could multiply examples, but for our purposes today, we're going to to zoom in and we're going to look at the juxtaposition of two pictures. We're going to look at, at David as a picture of a man that was a man after God's own heart as he's preparing to ascend to the throne. And we're going to see him surviving beautifully under the weight of the anointing as he's stepping into something while his predecessor is spiraling out of control. A predecessor, incidentally, Saul, who when he was made king, do you remember he was a head taller than everyone? He was handsome. He was rich. And the text specifically says he was anointed by the Spirit of God. He was among the prophets. It became a saying in Israel, is Saul among the prophets? Because he was prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit, signs and wonders accompanying this work of a man that was wealthy and tall. He, he had it all. Yet, when his story ended, he committed suicide. He couldn't hear the word of God. His body was dismembered. He was hung up. His body was strung up and his armor was strung up as praise to idols. A statement that, look, we have conquered God's man. That was the end of his story. And so my, my, my aim for our time is to ask and answer the question, how do you survive the anointing? How do you thrive in the midst of it? The Lord has been doing a work breaking me and the team that I get to lead. He has revealed to us that we're, we're competent. We're very well-educated. We are connected. And we can accomplish a lot through our strategy and effort and grit and hustle. And we have. <laughs> we have. The sort of stuff that gets you accolades and pats on the back, we've done that. And over the last couple of years, it's almost like God in his kindness and his tenderness and his affection, it's like he's called us in close. And he said, I need to tell you the truth about some things. You're accomplishing things by secondary gifts and blessings, but you're not experiencing my power. And I want you to. It has been the, the great joy of my life and ministry over the last two years just to start putting our toes in the water. Of starting to understand what it is to, to not operate simply by the flesh, but to begin to understand what it is to operate by his power. I am in by no, no stretch of the imagination an example for this. But what I need you to know is I'm a fellow journeyman saying, God, what I want is to survive under the weight of your call 
and your direction. And so, as we go on this journey, we're going to examine David, and, and we're just going to be referencing what's happening with Saul in the backdrop as we see the juxtaposition of the two. And the invitation is for, for you to step into the calling of God confidently, courageously, joyfully, with tremendous risk and blessing as he's saying, it is possible for you to be the sort of person that would not just start, but would finish. So, our text for the day is 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're right on the brink of David ascending to the throne. He doesn't know that, but we as good Bible readers do. And so we catch him in this moment. It has been years in the making. It has not been an easy journey for him. He has been on the run. He has been living in caves. Uh, it, is, it has been difficult. And we're in many ways reaching the fever pitch of his difficulty that comes just before he experiences the ascendancy to the throne that God has marked him out for, has anointed him for. And I believe that in surveying this text, we'll start to understand what does it look like to be the sorts of men and women that can survive under the weight of God's anointing. So I want to start by reading the first six verses for us. Just before I do, permit me to remind you what the prophet Isaiah says about the scriptures. He says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. There's a lot of things that are going to call for your attention and your focus, saying, hey, just pay attention here, listen here. But everything else that we're coming in contact with the world, it's coming apart. It cannot sustain our weight. But when we come to the Word of God, we're in touch with something eternal and life-giving and powerful, and we would be really, really wise to pay attention. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, now, David and his men have been out, and they're coming home, many ways miraculously delivered by God's presence so that they didn't have to fight against their own Israelites in the context. And they've come back to what has been their temporary home, Ziklag. And it says, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and they went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire. Their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and they wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the wife of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Let's pause there. This has not been an easy road for David and this is, in many ways, the pinnacle. It's hard to pick a pinnacle of his pain because it was constant companion for David. But I think this one may be showing up at the, at the end of what has been a consistently exhausting season. Being on the road, sleeping in caves, continuing to labor to honor God, even when it feels like it's accomplishing nothing. It feels like, if I'm David, 
and you scroll all the way back to the beginning of his story, I wasn't, I wasn't even invited when the kingmaker showed up. When Samuel came and they were hosting this great prophet of Israel, I didn't even get the invite. My dad, it's like he doesn't even see me. I've lived in the shadow of my brothers all my life. Then I received this anointing. I received great victory. But then all of a sudden, I'm on the run from King Saul. And I have spent years on the run. And now, after years and years of waiting and remaining and being faithful, here I am in this moment. And the people, the only people in this whole nation that have, have been with me, the only ones, my own dad felt like he didn't see me. My wife has been taken from me. His original wife, Michael, is taken from him. He's, he's, been, he's been divorced from everything that he felt like should be his. But there was this little band of followers that gathered around him who were bitter in soul originally. And they said, maybe there's hope to tra- come and travel with David. And so there's a band of about 600 that had gathered around him. It was his only community in a sea of hurt and heartache. And in this moment now, his home has been burned. His family has been taken captive. No doubt he's wondering, what are they doing right now to my wives and my children? You feel that? He's grieving to the point where it says he weeps until he just doesn't have any left. You ever go to that moment where you just like, I've run dry. I don't have any tears left. And the only people that have believed in him and stood with him want to kill him. The first thing that we must recognize, the first thing that we must recognize if we're going to wrestle with what it means to survive the anointing, stepping in to leadership for the sake of God's kingdom, is this. Leadership is gut-wrenching and lonely and will take you to the end of yourself. We have to start here. We're not being honest about the call if we don't name it. This is not unique to David. We could search through the scriptures and find what it means to lead, but we, we could certainly run to a man like Paul in 2 Timothy when he's all alone at the end of his life having honored God and preached faithfully, and he says, everyone left me. Everyone. He's writing to Timothy saying, would you just bring my coat? It's cold. He is an old, cold, lonely man in a jail cell saying, I need somebody to stand with me. He says, they all abandoned me. Uh, You see, leadership is is gut-wrenching. It's lonely, and it will take you to the end of yourself. David was in this unique place that people came to him for a reason. They came because they were bitter in soul, a very specific phrase that was used when the people started gathering to him. They came thinking, maybe there's hope here. Maybe there's help here. And David begins to lead them, both as an anointed king and like a father caretaker. He's shepherding people. He's in a pastoral role, loving and tending to these people as he's leading them. They have this hope of a future kingdom that they're participating in. But then, interestingly, when they arrive and Ziklag has been burned and their families are gone, now they're bitter in soul, but David is the cause of it, not the cure of it. 
They can't. It's the very same phrase. The author of the text is, is naming it for us. He's helping us feel it. That when you step into leadership, people come thinking, you're going to be the source of hope and healing. I, I believe in this mission. I want to be on this mission. I will follow you on this mission. But there will be times, whether by accident or circumstance or missteps or lack of wisdom, where you actually are the cause of the pain, not the cure of it. That's the nature of leadership. You don't have all the answers. You're going to make missteps. David, in this moment, is doing his very best, but because of decisions he's made and the way he's led his team, all of their family is gone. Their homes are burned. They're assuming in this moment that their wives and their children are being raped. And they say, it's your fault. Leadership is gut-wrenching. And it's lonely. And it will take you to the end of yourself. And leadership in the church particularly, because church hurt, hurt suffered at the hands of Christians in the community of God, cuts deeper than any other kind of hurt. And so the struggle and the, the reality is that at times, by your own folly or your sin, or by circumstances and misunderstanding, you are going to be the occasion for people's hurt. And it's going to cut deeper than any other kind of hurt. This is what David is experiencing. And listen to me, friend, if you're in ministry long enough, it's coming for you. Leadership will take you to the brink. It will take you to the end of yourself. And it brings us to a question. It, many of us experience this. You know, COVID in a certain way was this moment that the whole globe experienced anxiety kind of flooding the system. And leadership was really challenging and it was circumstantial. It wasn't a decision that anybody made, but all of a sudden it's like, we're trying to figure this thing out. We got no roadmap and everybody has an opinion and they're looking at the pastor going, why isn't your opinion my opinion? And and all of a sudden, spiritual leadership feels very lonely. It feels like it's taking you to the brink. It feels like anxiety is shot through the system. And you're going, I feel like right now I'm the cause of people's disappointment or pain. When I wanted to, I actually wanted to serve them in that place. And when there is a moment like that in ministry, it's a decision point. The question is, how are you going to respond when the call to lead takes you to the end of yourself. Incidentally, if we had been reading straight through in the book of 1 Samuel, we would have been reading about Saul. And Saul's story is spiraling out of control. Incidentally, in this very same moment, he is swamped by anxiety because the Philistines have a massive army that have surrounded him. And Saul is deciding the same thing. He is wrestling with how do I respond to unrest and my people wanting me to lead and me not knowing what to do. Saul, incidentally, in the chapters just leading up to this, he had distanced himself from God. He had killed the priests for supporting the anointed of God, David. He had, he had killed 85 of the priests and distanced himself from the worship of God. God has become silent, as we read earlier. He is now looking to the medium of indoor to speak. He is scrambling. He has been absorbed by the anxiety and the brokenness of the system. 
And all of a sudden, he's revved up trying to figure out, how do I hold it all together? How do I preserve my own kingdom? This will certainly be the temptation when you're brought to the end of yourself. But I want to show you a different way. I want to show you a a different way. What does it look like to survive the anointing when leadership is gut-wrenching, lonely, and takes you to the end of yourself? Look back at the text, and let's see how David responds in this moment. Picking up in verse 6b, it says this, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David said to Abiathar, the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So he brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, you shall surely overtake, you shall surely rescue. Friend, the most crucial the most crucial step for you to take in your leadership if you are going to survive the anointing is affectionate witness. Affectionate witness. To be with God affectionately. You see, David's first move in this moment was, I need to be with God. I need to be with him in affection, in the quiet, in the secret place. You see, his response finds me out. My response in moments in the past where my leadership has taken me to the end of myself looks more like Saul than like David. I want to scramble. I've got gifts and education, and connections. It's time to get whiteboards out and get the strategy going, get the team together, get all of our best thoughts on paper. We can figure this out. Or if someone is making accusations or they want to stone me because they're unhappy with what's gone on, I don't resort to strategy. I resort to anger. I say, I can match that. Let's let's work the history together. Let's talk about my role in your life. You know, where were you when we met? And how did I serve you? And all the things that David could have rightly said to these people that want to stone him. Where were you before we connected? Everything that you've experienced and everything that you're hoping for, I am helping lead you into. I'd rather you said thank you and been on your way. (laughs) That's in the soul. That shows up in me. David doesn't do it. Ah, you want one of the primary indicators that you're a fool, according to the scriptures. Primary indicators that you're a fool. You're defensive. If you read the Proverbs and you ask, what's what's the primary activity of the fool? It's talking and defending him or herself. That's the primary activity of the fool in the Bible. David doesn't get angry. He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't get busy with more activity, frantic activity, trying to hold it all together because people are anxious and I have to have the solutions and the answers for them. He says, I need to go be with God in affection. He strengthens himself in the Lord. The beauty is that David has been prepared for this moment by years, years in the wilderness. He is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He he was forgotten by his dad because he was out with the sheep all night long writing songs to God. 
David has been prepared for the throne by being left in the wilderness. He has been prepared to, to fight giants by tending to sheep. He has been prepared in secret and forgotten places because there he has learned how to be affectionately with God. It is his preparation to lead. And beautifully, because he's been prepared in that way for 15 years or more, he is now in this moment saying, what else would I do? I have to go be with him. He strengthens himself in the Lord. Uh, just to young leaders in the room, for a brief aside. Um, some of you wonder, like, is my day coming? When do I get to lead? Uh, allow David's preparation to inform and instruct you. He did not grasp at power. He did not get ahead of God. Twice in the previous chapter, Saul was delivered into his hand and he would not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And now in this moment, he still continues to do the same work. My work is not to defend myself. My work is not to raise up and prove how great I am. My work is to go be affectionately with God. It is your most crucial activity at a heart level. You see, yesterday I got to talk about what are we doing at a congregational level? And then we talked about, what do you do at a relational level? And now we're getting to the heart of the matter. What do you do at a soul level? If you are going to be the sort of man or woman that is engaged in a gospel movement, it is going to erupt from intimacy with God in the secret place. It doesn't come from anywhere else. It comes from being with Him. So, when things spike out of control, when people want answers and solutions from you, resist the urge to give them. That's not your primary role. Your primary role is not to be an answer woman or man. It's not to say, I've got all the solutions, just come to me. He doesn't look at the bitter and soul and go, no, but I can deliver you. He says, I need to go be with God. When you are in the midst of a moment that has brought you to the end of yourself, and it feels like the system is shot through with anxiety, everybody is on edge, and you can almost feel it in the room, your role is not to have all the answers. Your role is to have the lowest blood pressure. Your role is to know whose you are, to go be with him. Affectionate witness is your most crucial first step. And when you do this, what will happen is the same thing that happened for David. He was able to prioritize the voice of God. When he was strengthening himself in the Lord in the way that he has for decades, now he says, bring it to me. He says, bring me the ephod. Bring me this means of hearing the voice of God because what I need more than anything else is not all the voices that are out there. Saul is scrambling around listening to all of the voices. There's this interesting moment where David delivers Saul. He doesn't kill him. And Saul repents and goes, Oh, David, I'm so sorry. I won't do it again. Then two chapters later, <laughs> some guys come running in and they're like, We know where David is. We think you should go get him. And Saul's like, I think you're right. He's listening to everyone except God. 
which incidentally in an anxious system is very easy to do because all of the voices get louder and louder. They get more demanding. They've got lots of solutions for you. You want to keep everybody happy. And so now all of a sudden, everybody's voice feels so loud and compelling. You need to go be affectionately with him. And when you are, you start caring about the only voice that matters. David says, I need to know what to do. And the only one who knows is God. And God shows up and in his mercy, he speaks. He speaks. He prioritizes the voice and David hears. God says, surely, go after them. This is your path. David Ravenhill in his work, Surviving the Anointing, he said, here's three steps. These are the three steps to surviving the anointing. I think we see them here. He says, it starts with desperation. (laughs) If you're not desperate for God's presence, under the weight of the calling, the reality, the pressing reality of what's going on in a nation or in a world, and we're looking at this. He's saying, we should have desperation that I cannot do this by my own competence and power. Desperation. Incidentally, what Saul has is his competence, his strength, his height, his wealth. That's what he has. David is desperate. Desperation breeds intimacy. When When you daily start low before God going, oh God, have mercy on me. Speak to me. Strengthen me. And you linger. The unhurried while. Unhurried time in the presence of God. Cultivating intimacy and life and joy and the only voice that matters. You see, desperation bleeds intimacy. Competency breeds coldness. The competent keeps God at arm's length because, by the way, I'm maintaining my own kingdom right now and by my own power and my own might and my own connections, I can manage it, thank you very much. And the relationship grows cold even to the point where when Saul calls for the word of God, it's crickets, silent. Desperation breeds intimacy, breeds authority. You know when someone has been with God. Yes. You know it. Moses had to pull the veil over his face because they said, oh, you've seen the face of God. David leads men who are bitter in soul. We're about to see. He leads them with confidence and they follow him because when he comes back, they go, oh, he's been with God. They go from wanting to stone him to ready to follow him And the reason is because he went and was affectionately with God and came back saying, I've heard from him. You see, desperation breeds intimacy, breeds the only sort of authority that you want. Authority that's rooted in God's heart and God's word. Meanwhile, competency breeds coldness, causes you to crumble under the weight of it. Saul is crumbling under the weight of his own competence. You see, it's desperation, intimacy, authority. It's just like Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles 20 when he goes, I don't know. Can you imagine praying like this in front of your people? Surrounded by armies and he goes, we don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Your people need a leader like that. 
Stop knowing what to do all the time. Stop it. Like having all the solutions for everyone all the time. That's competence. It's leading out of flesh and strength. But if there's genuine desperation for God's presence, intimacy before his face, now you'll be able to speak with authority in a way that your people can receive without it being all about you. You see, affectionate witness is the necessary starting point. It's the most crucial gift that you can give your people. The most important thing that you will give your church is your heart fully alive in Jesus. You can't give them anything more important as a pastor or a leader. Your heart fully alive in Jesus. You experiencing joy in him. Jesus, when he called the disciples in the book of Mark, it says that he called them so that he, they would be with him. Before they were preaching, before they were casting out demons, the, the first reason that Mark lists for why he called them to himself is, I just want you to be with me. Our definition for discipleship yesterday was that we would be so relationally connected to Jesus that his fruit is on our branches. It is the gift that you give your people. In fact, you don't have anything else to give if this is not the case. You have yourself to give. You have your gifts to give. You have this thin, increasingly thin. You will get thinned out. You will become a shell of yourself, trying to hold everything together by your strength. And people will be able to... They know. We all start playing the charade together. Mary chose the better thing, sitting at his feet. Martha scrambled and worked. You see, the way we've articulated it in the life of our community, this is not legalistic. It's loving. What I say to my leaders is, the expectation for you is at minimum one hour of unhurried time with God before you spend time with anyone, every day. It's... It's a non-negotiable. Our staff knows it's, it's not legalistic. It's loving both for you and for the people that you serve. But listen, you won't work here if that's not how you work. Because what, what do you have to give them? If you haven't been with him, what do you have to give them? Yourself. And they don't need that. They don't need it. And so what we say is it, it's across the board. Our receptionist, you know, the administrative work, Kids, whatever role you're playing on the team, it's like, I don't care what you're doing. We're all making this commitment. And quite frankly, we're, we're going to know if it's not happening because intimacy breeds a spiritual authority and we're all going to know if we're not living in it. We will know. It is a requirement for the job. Uh, so here's the warning before we move on. Beware transactional witness. Beware transactional witness. Saul was with God early on because God was a means to his ends. Saul was with God because God played a really functional role for him. He was transactionally with God. God was part of the story, helping him get along to do what he had in his heart to do. But Ultimately, transactional witness over time, intimacy drains out. If your time with God is about preparing sermons, about getting ready for the next counseling meeting or the next instruction, if every time you're with God, he's serving a really good purpose for you to go do the thing that you're supposed to be doing. 
We're not talking about intimacy. We're talking about transaction. We're talking about contract. We're actually begging God to be less personal to us and just serve our purposes. And what he's saying is, the very reason I called you is because I want you with me. And by the way, it's where you'll finally experience joy. Like you will have joy erupting in a way that no circumstance will touch if you'll just come be with me. He wants your joy, which is why he's saying, quit playing this exchange with me and come be with me. Lay down your transactional withness. Lay down your busyness. It's not a badge of honor. Being too busy for God is not a badge of honor. It is disqualifying. We think that if we can just prove how much we're doing and how much I'm, how much I'm hustling and how I'm holding it all together, that then, then I'm going to experience, I don't know what we're expecting, but it's not there at the end of that road. He's going, would you just come be with me? The first and most crucial step is affectionate witness, and this is what it produces. It produces calm, confident, compassionate leadership. When you go and you are affectionately with the Lord and you prioritize his voice, what will emerge out of you as a leader is that you will be calm and you will be confident and you will be compassionate. No more anger, no more defensiveness, no more busyness that runs over everyone around you trying to keep up with you. You'll be calm and you'll be confident and you'll be compassionate and it'll actually create flourishing and thriving for the people closest to you, not destruction and exhaustion and burnout. It will be like a well-watered tree bearing fruit in and out of season. Let me see if I can prove it to you from the text. Look at verse 9 and following. It says this, so David set out and the 600 men who were with him and they came to the brook Besor where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 of the men because 200 stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook. So 600 set out, the ones who wanted to stone him are ready now to march with him. But they're tired. It's been a hard few days and only 400 can keep pressing. But those 400 in this moment know that God has spoken and we're in connection with his calling. We're stepping out to do what he has called us to do as we're going to rescue our families. It says in verse 11, they found an Egyptian in the open country and they brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate and they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of, of cake and figs and they gave him two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten and his spirit was revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And then David said to him, to whom do you belong? Where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt. I'm servant to an Amalekite. My master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against those which belonged to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. There it is. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master and I will take you down to this band. What you see in David moving from the moment at the lowest despair, no more tears to weep, ready to be stoned by his people. Now you see him stepping out in calm, confident, compassionate leadership. 
in a way that's allowing those around him to thrive. He's moving forward in the promises of God. It allows him not to waver. If I'm David and I'm marching out not knowing how big the crew was that just burned my home and stole my family and we get to the brook and only 400 want to keep going, I might go, "Ah," except that he's been with God. And do you remember what God told him? Do you remember it? Verse 8, there's this little word that gets used twice. Which word is used twice in verse 8? It says, uh, shall I pursue after this man? Shall I overtake them? He answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. That there's this interesting note that God doesn't just say it once. No, listen, surely do this. Surely. God has spoken clearly, and what he told David is, I've already secured it. It's already over. It's already done. The promise has named it. So because David has been with God, and he comes to a moment where me as a leader, if a third of my forces are hiving off and saying uh, no further, I'd start to go, ooh, I don't know. Maybe need to, need to renegotiate. He's not leading out of strength. He's not leading out of strategy. He's leading out of the promises of God. And in this moment, he says, we keep going. He, he continues to move forward with calm and with confidence because he's been with God. And he is so compassionate and so patient that when they find a man dying in the desert, now listen, if, if I know that my family is in the hands of marauders, and they're somewhere out there. <laughs> I don't have time to tend to dying people in the desert. You get it? I gotta find my wife. I gotta find my kids. He has not been absorbed by the anxiety of the system. He's not part of the anxious presence. He's been with God. And in this moment, he he cherishes life. Here's this Egyptian servant lying, dying in the wilderness, and they've got time. It it sounds like it takes a little time to revive this guy. It's water, and then it's cake, and then it's raisins, and they're just sitting with him, and they're going, stay with us, buddy. Stay with us. Pouring water over his head. David and his men, even though they're worried and concerned about family, in this moment, they're not too busy to be compassionate. One of of the ways that you will know the anointing is crushing you is people have become a hurdle. They're an interruption. When your people are an interruption to you, ah, you're being crushed. This is not God's calling that people are a hindrance. Don't you see that I'm important and doing important things? I'm working on a message about loving people. Yeah? You see that who you are when you're interrupted is who you are. That's that's who you are. When all of a sudden life keeps happening, people keep showing up and we're going, I'm too busy being a pastor to be a pastor. Uh, We are not surviving the anointing of God. And David, in this moment, 
he is able to be interrupted on what is an incredibly important mission because he has been with God. He is calm, he is confident, and he is compassionate. If this is not the case, you will grow frantic. The word that will describe you is hurry. Frantic activity. This is what Saul is doing. He just stayed up all night long with the medium of indoor. Try, trying to get a word from God, and at the end of it, he's so exhausted. And she's like, you need to eat something. You're like, I can't. Just. He's just been scrambling, trying to hold his kingdom together. David is with God, trying to bring his kingdom. So which are you doing? Are you scrambling in frantic, frantic activity to build your kingdom? Are you patiently, calmly, compassionately, built out of the authority of having been with God, building his? See, if we're going to survive the anointing, it's going to be desperation, intimacy, authority. It's going to be that we've been with him. And as a result, now we're able to lead as a calm presence in the midst of all of the anxiety. And now let me tell you what it produces. Uh, I've got good news. Good news about what it means to walk in the anointing of God. When you have been affectionately with God and you step out into the world as a calm, confident, compassionate leader, what it produces is unified, gracious kingdom advance. Unity, grace, advance. This is what God does through the man or woman that is welcoming and thriving under the anointing of God. Let's read the conclusion of this story, starting in verse 16. It says this, When he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David struck them down. He struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken, and David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and all the herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, saying, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow, and who had been left at the brook. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. And all the wicked and the worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they didn't go with us, we're not going to give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and his children and depart. David said, you shall not do so. With what the Lord has given us, he has preserved us. He has given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share all alike. He made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Just before we read the conclusion, let's just make a couple of notes. David, in this moment, what he is doing is he is, he is ushering the riches of God into his people, and he's helping them to experience unity together by showing grace. So, lingering in the shadows of your victories is pride that causes division. Every great victory under the anointing of God has crouching in its shadows pride that will divide. These men just got to be a part of something really great, and as they're coming back, they immediately 
from this point of getting used by God, seeing God answer through the word that David has received, now all of a sudden they're looking down on everybody and God, you, you weren't with us the way we were with him. All of a sudden there's division, there's pride. And David, because he is a calm and a confident and a compassionate leader, he looks upon the weakness of the 200, the exhaustion of the 200, and he goes, I get it. And this is yours too. That is a leader that has been with God, loving his people the way that God has loved him. God has restored them. He has blessed them. And then ultimately, at the conclusion, verses 26 to the conclusion, what it says is this, when David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present from you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and in Ramoth of Negev and in Jatir and Aror and Sifmoth and in Eshtemoah and Rakal and the cities of the Jeremelites and the cities of the Kenites and Horma and Borishan and Athak and Hebron for all the places where David and his men had roamed. I went to seminary, but they didn't teach me how to say those words. Um, You know, the conclusion is this. David's blessing, or let me even, David is sending gifts to the leaders of Judah, not knowing that on the the next day Saul's about to die in battle and they're going to be ready to crown him king finally. He's been waiting for years, not knowing when his moment is coming. He doesn't know that his moment is coming Immediately. God's final preparation for David to bless him and to pave the way with blessings for Judah, his plan to do that was the burning of his city and the kidnapping of his family. David didn't know that. The men didn't know that. That was God's design to prepare him for the throne. It was God's design to bless him. So many moments when we're threatened to come undone and we think, oh no, what has happened? I'm going to be absorbed into it all. I'm going to start in my flesh trying to fix all this. And God's going, there's nothing to fix. I'm blessing you. Like all of your rage against the circumstances and trying to have all the solutions. He's going, just come be with me. I will tend to you. You know, Joseph was prepared for the throne by being left in prison. David is prepared by being left in the wilderness and having a city burned and everything come undone. You may be looking at something in your circumstances right now going, all right, pastor man, I hear that that happened. But if you knew, if you knew what was happening in my context, my challenge, my heartache, this idea of just staying calm and with God, and you would go, certainly you'd know that That's not sufficient. Can I finish with a final word of hope? My invitation today is not to set your gaze on David. If that's the end of the story, we're going to be crushed by it. I'm not like David. I'm not the sweet psalmist of Israel. I'm not the man after God's own heart like David was. But the invitation is not just to set your eyes on King David, but to set your eyes on the great king, the son of David. And what I want you to hear is this. Did he not walk intimately with the father? Like at the point of anxiety where it was threatening the whole system. Not before the Father say, oh, that this cup would pass from me. 
but not my will yours. He knew that the final great battle was coming and he had to be with the Father affectionately. He knew it. He said, will you, will you watch with me? And they couldn't. He was all alone in the darkness. But he was experiencing the affectionate withness of the Father and going, I trust your will. He was intimately with him, and for that reason, he stepped out as a calm, confident, compassionate leader. They come running into the garden to arrest him. And Peter wants to rush to solutions by the power of his flesh. Fight! I can do this by my own might. We can protect this. We can fix this. And Jesus says, put your sword away. I've been with God. And this is how it has to be. He was calm. He was compassionate. He even reached out and he healed Malchus's ear in that moment. His enemy that came to arrest him. It's kind of like reviving one of the people who burned your city back from death. And did the kingdom not advance to the most like unlikely of means in the history of the world? Gracious, unified kingdom advance in the most unexpected of ways. The most upside down and backwards moment in all of history was when innocence itself was slaughtered. There's never been a more broken moment, ever. As he was bleeding and dying and coming undone for you and for me, there was nothing that's been uglier or more broken, nothing that's ever been done to a leader that was more wrong, ever. It was the means by which he was securing his greatest victory. It's how he did it. At the cross and the subsequent empty tomb, he was securing the great kingdom advance. So listen. If he can take the ugliest and the worst and win the greatest victory, whatever it is in your hands, whatever it is, it's lesser. He can do it. Surely he will do it. Surely he will do it. Go be with him. Be with him in affection, thanking him for what he has done. Your eyes on King Jesus, knowing that he has won the great victory and he will win victory in your story as well. You don't have to fix it all. You don't have to have all the solutions. Go be with him affectionately, knowing that it is the source of your joy and your life and your fullness. And then step out with calm, with confidence, with compassion. And the kingdom shall surely advance through you. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.